This is the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. Hello, friends, and welcome to a Wednesday Wisdom episode of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. And if you're wondering why the J, the answer is I am not a bagpipe player. And if that joke doesn't make any sense, I encourage you to check out episode zero where I explain that joke as well as the purpose of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast. But as to today's episode, our Wednesday Wisdom episodes are this. I am sharing the audio of my sermons from the church I pastor, Evident Grace Fellowship in Fredericksburg, Virginia, as well as sermons from churches I have pastored prior, as well as sermons that I've preached at other places. And I'm sharing them with you for this reason. My sermons are usually not too long. They're between 30 and 40 minutes long. And by sharing them with you, it gives you a chance for some spiritual encouragement midweek. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's challenging and encouraging, like I said. And if it is, would you please send me a note at uh, gordon at jgordonnuckin.com or maybe even share this sermon online, Facebook, or on your Instagram story. I hope you enjoy it. So let's get to the sermon. Romans 9, 30 through 33. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, to help us understand Romans 9 today, I want to remind us of a story from 1 Samuel 30. Now, we studied 1 Samuel like two years ago. It doesn't seem that long, uh, but not everybody was here during that time. So I want to recount a story from 1 Samuel 30. It's going to be a little bit longer introduction than usual, uh, but I think it's going to help us understand Romans 9 really well. In 1 Samuel 30, King David is no longer in Israel. He fled to a foreign country because King Saul wants to kill him. And so King David has set up a a city, a town, or a village, if you will, with 600 men and all of their families and all of their possessions. It's a a little mini city that, that David has created. And uh, one day, David and all 600 men go out to fight. And they leave behind, of course, their wives and their children and all their possessions. And while David and his 600 men are gone, a group of people called the Amalekites rush in, kidnap all their wives, all their children, and take away all their most valued possessions, things like precious jewels or even the sheep or the goats, however they were making a living. Now remember, there's no texting, there's no email, there's no phone. Uh, David and his 600 men don't even know that this has happened. So when they all return to the village, they find it just completely wiped out. Their children are gone, their wives are gone, and their most valued possessions. And David and his men, according to 1 Samuel 30, weep until they can't weep anymore. Now, I don't know how many of us have ever experienced that before, that you just cry and cry and weep until literally there's nothing left in you. It's a heaving body, just there's nothing left. And that's what happens to David and his 600 men. They've lost everything. 
But David does something wonderful. 1 Samuel 30 says that David strengthens himself in the Lord. David goes to God, the one place where you can truly find strength, a strength that you can count on, a strength that will endure. David goes to God, and 1 Samuel 30 says he strengthens himself in the Lord. And then David seeks out God. God, what should I do? And God assures David, go and attack the Amalekites, and you will get all of your family and everything back. So David grabs those 600 men, essentially saying that the time of weeping is over. We don't need to cry anymore. God has called us to go fight to rescue our families. So David, if he was in a movie, it would be one of those slow-mo scenes. You know what I'm talking about? Where they, everybody puts on their knives and their guns, and then they walk kind of slow. But like, these guys are ready to go into battle. And they've been promised that they're going to win. But along the way, 200 of the men run out of energy. They tell the other 400, we're too tired to keep going. And what happens, and we learn this later in the passage, is it causes a problem with the other 400. You can imagine when a couple of guys go, hey, I'm too tired, you need to go without me. And the others go, you're too tired to go fight for your wife and kids? Oh, no, no, don't worry, I got it. I'll go rescue your family for you. You just stay and get yourself some shade and some water. But David and his men, the 400, they go fight. And what the scriptures say is that they overcome the Amalekites, completely wipe them out, rescue their wives, rescue their children, get all of their possessions back, and they take all the possessions of the Amalekites. They get everything back, wives, children, their possessions, and then they've got the spoils of war. And so they come back, this giant caravan of people, and they reunite with the 200. And you can imagine how wonderful that would be. Children running up to their dads and giving them hugs. Husband and wife just weeping and hugging each other. And they've got everything back. But then the bitterness seeps in. The 400 go, hey, wait a minute. You can have your wife and kids, and you can have whatever's yours, but you can't have the stuff we took from the Amalekites because you were too tired to go and fight. 200, have what's yours. We're keeping all the spoils of war. And King David, incredibly wise, we know he's wise, steps in and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Because he could have a civil war in his hand in a heartbeat. And he says, whether you went and fought or not, everybody shares in the spoils of war equally. Now, in this story, we might begin to wonder, what are some lessons we could learn from this? Let me share a couple of lessons we don't learn from this. First of all, none of you are King David, so this is not a management technique. Okay? You don't go to work tomorrow and say, hey, everybody makes the same thing per hour. That's not what's being taught here. This is not even a technique for war because none of you are in the army of Israel. Okay, So that's none of that. But here's what we should learn. If you approach scriptures in what's called a, a historical redemptive model, you're looking, hey, where do I find Jesus in this passage and where do I find me? You are the 200 who don't have enough strength to accomplish anything. 
And Christ is the one who wins the battle on your behalf and shares in everything that you did not earn. You see, we can't earn anything before God. We're not strong enough to earn anything before God. We can't earn his affection. We can't earn his approval. We're sinners. But Christ is the one who fights our battle for us. Christ wins the battle against sin, wins the battle against death, and he gives you all of the spoils of his battle, even though you didn't earn them. For the 400 men, the 200, the idea of them getting something was a stumbling block to them. They felt like they had earned it. Felt like they had earned everything they had. And the idea of sharing in it caused them to stumble. But David looked at them and said, no, 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 no. What David did is he administered grace and mercy. And when we approach Romans 9, we need to have the same idea that we don't earn anything before God, but that Christ, our victor, earns it all for us. And if we can't understand it, better yet, if we can't apply it, Christ is a stumbling block on our behalf. Romans 9 is going to illustrate that in great detail, and we're going to pursue this big idea. Christ causes people to stumble. And there's three points that we need to understand here. First, the first is we need to understand attaining without straining. Then we need to understand straining without attaining. And finally, we need to understand offensive or shameless. That's where we're going today. Let's look at our first point, attaining without straining. Verse 30, what shall we say then? Let's stop there. Anytime Paul says, what shall we say then? He's referencing something that he's just taught. Last week, we looked at this verse, verse 29. Uh, he said this, he said, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That verse was saying that if God had not promised to faithfully and continually preserve faith in himself, handed down and handed down and handed down, we all would have just been punished for our sins like Sodom and Gomorrah. And last week we went into what that sin was. I encourage you to listen to that message if you get a chance. But verse 29 saying this, the only reason we're not punished is because God's faithful. Making promises all the way back in Genesis 3, all the way to us. God has been faithful to all the promises he's made. Therefore, when we have faith in Jesus, we are not punished like those in Sodom and Gomorrah. That was verse 29. So verse 30 says, okay, in light of that, what should we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. Now, when first century heard Gentiles, it was synonymous with rank, awful, godless pagans. Those who had not been raised among the community of Israel, those who had not enjoyed all the benefits of having the law, of having the temple, of having the Ten Commandments, of having the festivals, they didn't have any of that stuff. So when they say Gentiles, Paul's saying all the most ungodly people you can imagine so in light of the fact that God has been faithful, what shall we say then? 
the Gentiles who did not pursue any of those great things. They did not pursue obedience to the law. They didn't pursue keeping the festivals. They didn't pursue making sacrifices. They didn't pursue the Ten Commandments. They didn't pursue any of that stuff. The Gentiles who didn't pursue any measure of godliness have attained godliness. That is a righteousness by faith. Can you imagine in that day how amazingly difficult that would be to hear? That all the people who seemed to have done every single thing that God told them to do, those folks didn't attain it. But the people who have lived godless lives, full of sexual immorality, full of drunkenness, full of jealousy, full of blasphemy, those folks start enjoying goodness and righteousness. They attained righteousness by faith. What's the definition of righteousness? Right in the eyes of God. You guys are going to, I promise you, by end of Romans, you're all going to do it. Righteousness is right in the eyes of God. Whatever God calls good. The Gentiles got all the goodness because they went after it by faith. They didn't think, hey, I've been really, really good. God therefore loves me. When they saw the beauty of what Jesus Christ had done in his life and his death and resurrection and his promise of forgiveness. The Gentiles looked at that and said, I want it, how do I get it? And they said, believe. And they said, we believe. And they attained it all. Now this is always true for us as well. It's always true. The only way that you acquire righteousness The only way that you acquire goodness is that you believe Jesus gives it to you. Now, of course, once forgiven, like we talked about in our time of repentance, you seek to confirm that calling. You live a life of obedience. You can do righteous things, but it's not how you attain your relationship with Christ. That's the beauty of when you decide to repent after a long string of terribleness. When you have run after that sin, the beauty of it is you're reminded, wait a minute, I didn't begin this by being good. So I can return yet again. Because I have to have faith in what Jesus has done. This is supposed to be your guilt killer. This is supposed to be your shame killer. This is supposed to be the assurance that your heart needs so bad because you didn't get any of it by doing anything in the first place. You believed and you had faith. You attain goodness without straining to receive it. But that's not the case for everyone. Some strained but didn't attain. Let's look at the inverse of that. Verse 31, But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not exceed, excuse me, did not succeed in reaching that law. God gave them the law. The law is the representation of God's character. If God says, don't lie, that's because God doesn't lie. If God says, uh, don't be jealous, it's because God doesn't have a sinful jealousy. If God says, be faithful, it's because God is faithful. Every command that God has ever given is a representation of who he is. And so, 
Israel, the people of God, strained and strained and strained, thinking that if they obeyed, 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 then they would finally be good. But that wasn't the intention. The intention of the law was to show them how much they needed God. It was to teach us about God's character. It was about to show us a pattern of living. But mistakenly, the people in the Old Testament and the people in first century and everybody in the world who tries to be good on their own behalf, they're seeking to try to be good and they will not attain it. Because no matter how good you might think you might be, you cannot overcome your sin by being good. No measure of good work ever outweighs the bad. The scales are always guilty, no matter how good you might try to be. Verse 32, why? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They didn't obey the law by faith. They didn't pursue the festivals. They didn't pursue the sacrifices by faith. It was based on works. And they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. In our call to worship, in our time of repentance, Christ is the stumbling stone. Let's talk about free donuts for a minute. In World War II, the Red Cross had a program called Dollies and Donuts. It's a bit unfortunate title. The Dollies were young women who handed out free donuts. And so in World War II... Women would go over to Europe to serve in the Red Cross and hand out free donuts to the troops. That's a good plan, at least in the free donut portion. Not quite sure about the dolly part of it. But, it's like 1 Samuel 30, a conflict arose because the American troops got their donuts for free and the British troops had to pay for their donuts. So the Secretary of War intervened and called the Red Cross and said, you got to charge for those donuts. I think they contacted the wrong people. But anyway, they contacted the Red Cross. It was like, uh, listen, five cents a donut. Come on. So all of a sudden, the Red Cross started charging American troops five cents a donut. And to this day, many World War II vets can't stand the American Red Cross. I listened to uh, uh, an interview at a VFW hut and World War II vets, and they're like, hey, what do you think about the Red Cross? And like, can't stand the Red Cross. They charged us for donuts. It was like a year, like one year ever. The Red Cross has done wonderful things. Shouldn't have charged us for donuts back in Europe. Like, they're still mad. They're still mad. For some reason, the American Red Cross is more about giving blood these days than it is working with vets, because the vets are still angry about charging donuts. There's so many illustrations for this illustration, I don't even know where to go here. But here's where I will go. In the first century, the people of Israel were angry. They were angry. What do you mean, grace is free? I spent my entire life obeying the law. You know how hard it is to remain ceremonial clean when you raise animals? 
Do you know how hard it is to bring the exact amount to the temple for a sacrifice? And you can understand the conflict, not only with God, but then with those who are like, oh no, we just, this is great, I'm just going to go worship God today. They're like, you're a pig farmer, you don't get to just worship God whenever you want. And they're like, yeah, because Jesus has forgiven all my sins. But friends, the law of God is only meant to point your heart to how desperately you need a Savior. The obedience that you struggle with so much that makes you hate yourself, don't hate yourself because you struggle with obedience. Remind yourself that there's a wonderful Savior intended to pour out mercy on you and help you. Unfortunately, so often for the church, when we struggle with sin, we give up. We're like, I can't do this. I'm just done. I'm just going to run headlong into my sin. Maybe even leave the church or leave a marriage. The intention of our inability to obey is to push us to Jesus, draw us to Jesus, encapsulate us in our need for Jesus. Our obedience is never intended to make us feel self-righteous, ever. When you begin to fall into self-righteousness, you have flat fallen on your face, and Christ is the stumbling block that caused it. Have any of you ever been running and trip and fall headfirst into the pavement? Anybody? I know about three people, four people out here. I've done it a couple of times. It's just not really healthy for my, my brain. It's not healthy for anybody. It's also, I wish, on camera, it'd be hilarious. But we, it's just, if you've ever stumbled in the dark, anybody only got like, have you ever just flat out fallen? Like, it's scary. Like, you're on the ground. You're just scared to death. Like, am I okay? You start feeling around. Am I bleeding? Christ is the stumbling block for anybody who thinks, I can be good enough. Christ is the stumbling block for anybody who wants to judge others because we're better and they're worse. Christ wants you to stumble over your lack of ability so that you can cry out in faith and believe in that He has provided everything for you. Verse 33, offensive or shameless. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling. God told them in Isaiah, I'm going to lay a big old stumbling block right there for you, folks. And a rock of offense, and whoever believes me will not be put to shame. So in this, your options are this. You're either offended by what Christ has done, because he's told you you can't do it yourself, or... Your shame has been removed because you accept His grace. Those are the options. The church is shameless before God. We have no shame. And when the world hates us, it's because we offer something that tears away at their self-sufficiency, tears away at their goodness. We have a beautiful, beautiful gospel that says you don't have to measure up. Christ has measured up for you. And he's either going to draw people to that message or people are going to stumble over it. Let me read from us 1 Peter 2. I don't have this up here. Uh, let me read from 1 Peter 2. I think it's going to help us understand this a little bit better. 1 Peter 2, 6, and I'll try to put it in the Sunday recap uh, tomorrow. Um, you're going to be amazed how many times you hear this language over and over again. 1 Peter 2, 6. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter and Paul lined up their messages so well. 
So honor is for you who believe, but shame for those who do not. Honor is for you when you believe. You're not honored because of your obedience. You're not honored because of how amazing you are. You're honored because you finally said, it's only Christ, it's not me. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A cornerstone is that that rock laid first so that the entire house can be built around it. And so Christ is either the cornerstone of which you build everything around or he's the rock of which you stumble on. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you hear all the things that you are now when you believe in Jesus? First of all, you're a chosen race, which means you are your own collected people. God chose you out of the whole world to say, okay, this is my people right here. And you're a royal priesthood. You're royalty. And you're a priesthood. That means you can go straight and talk to God. You don't need a priest to do that for you. Earthly priests are unnecessary. You can talk directly to God and your royalty. Why are you royalty? Because you're children of the king himself. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, which is exactly what God promised to do in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 19. Here's our call in light of all these things from 1 Peter 2. All of this is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Our call is then to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to the world because He called you out of darkness and into the light. Do you see all the things we can do here? We can be reminded not to trust ourselves. We can be reminded to cast our hope on Jesus Christ. We can be reminded not to be self-sufficient. We can be reminded of who we are in light of what God has done. We're a rural priesthood. We are His possession. We're a holy nation, a chosen race. And we are then called to proclaim Christ to the world. But notice in 1 Peter, we've got to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. If you just say, I love Jesus, the whole world's going to be like, I love Jesus too. Jesus is fantastic. Jesus is a good guy. Very few people hate Jesus. He's up there with Mother Teresa and Gandhi. Like, we like Jesus. Jesus is a good guy. You're not proclaiming that Jesus. You're proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. And the excellencies of Jesus are the Jesus who say, you can't do this without me. You are destined for damnation without me. You have no hope without me. Whoever puts their hope in me will not be put to shame. That's the Jesus we proclaim. The offensive Jesus to the world is who we proclaim. Because he has met your need. Friends, recognize that every person you interact with, Jesus is one of two things. He's either the rock that they're going to stumble over and more than likely be pretty mad about you, with you about it, or he's the rock upon which you build everything. He's either the rock that people stumble over because he attacks their self-sufficiency and their self-righteous, or he's the rock upon which you build your life. And the end result for you is 
Peace, because you no longer have to strive. The, the loss of shame, because you no longer held guilty of your sins. A family that he is building out of the church. And a mission to proclaim his excellencies to the world. Uh, friends, let's move towards a, a conclusion here as we consider this. Christ causes people to stumble, and what we looked at was attaining without straining. That's how the Gentiles, that's how you were brought to God. You attained everything without trying to earn it. Then we looked at straining without attaining. Those were the people in the Old Testament and people today who seek to earn everything before God, and they can't earn it at all. And then offensive or shameless, Christ is either the offending rock you stumble over or he's the cornerstone upon which your life so that you no longer experience shame. Our truth is this. You either attain and maintain a relationship with Christ without straining for it or you strain for it and don't attain it. This will either be great news for your heart or the stumbling block of your life. Sorry for the really long truth this week. There's a lot to get in there. You're either going to strain for godliness and never get it, or you're going to attain it and not have to strain. And that's either going to be the wonderful thing that you build your life upon, or you're going to stumble over Christ along the way. Application. Uh, live knowing this. Live knowing that by faith, Christ doesn't reject you for your sin. Or accept you because of your disobedience. Neither one of those happens. If you have faith in Christ, you're not rejected because you sin. And because of Christ, you're not accepted because of your obedience. Those things are always in play. They're not even in tension. They're the same. Through Christ, He doesn't accept you because of how good you are. And He doesn't reject you because of how bad you are. He looks at you and He gives you every single thing you need when you trust Him by faith. But what's necessary there is to trust him by faith. Finally, I'm going to give you guys some homework. I want you to do something morning and evening. Morning and evening, I want you to do this. Morning and evening, I want you to write down, because of Jesus Christ, I will never be rejected for my sin. I don't know how you need to do it. I don't know if you need to have a journal by your bed, a sticky pad by your bed, a notepad by your bed. Don't do it in your phone. You're just going to get distracted playing words with friends or something. Don't do it. Listen to me. Find some way to write this down. Before you go to bed, I will never be rejected of my sin because of Jesus Christ. And when you wake up, say, because of Jesus Christ, I will never be rejected for my sin. Hammer it into your brain. Start your day and reflect on your day with those truths. Not only will it intend to establish a more peaceful life for you, but it will show you the proper place and the joyful obedience and prayerfully move you into what 1 Peter 2 said, that you'll be able to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ to a hurting and dying world.